0: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Yes, Indeed podcast created by Mark Shepard and run by me, Thomas Manuel. This is season five of the podcast and the second season that I've been running it. Have I learned how to podcast? No. Am I getting better? I think so. But on the episode today, we have two people who I think are very good at podcasting, If you like this podcast, you'll probably like that one. I'll have a list of my favorite episodes in the show notes if you want to just dive in with some of their greatest hits. I appreciate you folks tuning in, listening, supporting me as I publish with an extremely erratic schedule. I think I would like to be super regular. I think that is something I aspire to. I'm very regular with the newsletter. It's really important to me that it goes out every week. But doing this podcast is not exactly just up to me. It involves scheduling with other people, all of that stuff. So it's a bit tricky. I'm probably going to experiment a little bit with some solo episodes just so that I have a more regular schedule. But I appreciate your patience. Everyone who supports on Patreon, thank you so much. First episode of 2024, mid-Feb. Let's do this. I'm sitting down with Hannah Schaefer and Evan Rowland, the two creators behind the indie game design outfit Turtle Bun. They publish games like Questlandia, Noirlandia, Damn the Man, Save the Music, Mud, A Golem Memoir, and a bunch of others. You can find out more about their games at turtlebun.com. Evan and Hannah also co-host a podcast called Design Doc, which is, in their own words, about trying to make a living as people putting things out into the world if you read any reviews about that show you'll hear it being described with words like honest vulnerable caring friendly and it is all those things it's it's one of my favorite podcasts and you should listen to it and then you too can get insights into the daily practice of being a game designer and also learned that Carrie Fisher once over tweezed Hannah's mom's eyebrows at a workshop. That is
1: true. I forgot. I didn't even remember telling that story.
0: I think if we had this conversation one year ago, my, my opening joke question is, are you going to do Questlandia second edition? But I think I think that question has been answered now. So,
1: you might know the answer, yeah. So
0: let's start with an easier an easier question how did you both individually Uh, start playing role-playing games and then get into designing them. So yeah, Hannah, do you want to go first and then we can go to Evan?
1: My like designing games and playing games almost kind of started at the same time because Evan and I had opened up a community center over 10 years ago now in our town. And it was um, like a, a community event space. And we were also running a youth program. And on the opening day of the community center, a bunch of local game designers ended up coming to the opening day. Just, just by Those chance. are the people
2: who, who want community the most.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they're just hungry for community. So there's a lot of game designers who live here in Western Massachusetts. Like okay. Vincent and Meg Baker, Joshua A.C. Newman, Epic. Madaya, Ravishall, and Emily, Care Boss, I mean, like so many people who were just like you know really early in this you know what we would kind of call this indie RPG scene, yeah. Yeah. and they came to the opening day, and I think after then, I think I was kind of forced to play role playing games for the first time, <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: yeah,
1: <laughs> um, and did you know and did enjoy them.
2: For me, I I inherited some of my my uncle's Dungeons and Dragons supplies. At some point, oh. I was gifted all the advanced D&D books, along with his old character sheets.
1: Which, oh, like failed, pre-filled? Yeah, pre-filled, <laughs> which, wow. you
2: know, I read fastidiously. It's like, this is this is how it's done. And that's why I thought that the name Gordon Lightfoot was just an elf name, not a musician. <laughs> I was shocked. I <laughs> was a musician with that elf name. And then, yeah, so that was really early. I was in elementary school. I know because I can remember walking with my friend Alex and we would play D&D with no supplies, just talking it out, walking to school. And I remember being the dungeon master and accepting bribes. (laughs) I'd be like the trap springs and he'd be like what if I gave you 50 cents and I'd be like you dodged that
0: (laughs) Uh, this is this this is you were doing microtransactions before that was a thing
2: (laughs) and I think that's really borne out in my game design
0: (laughs) so uh, how how did the first edition of Questlandia come about like where did that come from in in your lives
1: i mean you know i think i think both of us were really inspired by this group of game designers that we had recently met at the time and we had been talking for a few years before that about maybe making a video game together and i mean that was that was my real gaming touchstone was growing up playing video games. And we had been starting to kind of work. I mean, we had, we had been working on a video game, yeah. none of the, you know, not, not a lot of the actual coding, but we had been working for, uh, you know, at least a year on the story and kind of just specking it out. Mm-hmm. And then meeting this group of game designers and, and imagining that it was possible to get a similar and more, but more social experience at a table with pen and paper I think at the time I was like also a little bit sick of being on my computer all the time. And I was like, oh gosh, like it was already, I was working as a web designer and I was like, oh, so I'm going to make websites and then just make our video game and be hunched over a computer all day. It turns out that like with the work that we do, making tabletop games a lot of the work you just sort of hunched over a computer all day (laughs) anyway and, um, and that you just have to be disciplined enough to like stretch and go for a walk and make sure you have good posture but that was that was kind of where it started i'd had some experiences early on in playing games for that first year of um playing games that were GMless or collaborative where my experience was that the rules of the game kind of said like, now it's time for everybody to make a world together. Okay, go. And really quickly as kind of a new or shyer player, I would get drowned out in those, you know, all right, go. Everybody just say a bunch of ideas and anything goes. And so making Questlandia, some of the inspiration was like, can we sort of can we make some rules around this contribution and make a world building game where people can contribute equally in a way where their voice is heard and there's checks and balances for, you know, ownership and control over this world?
0: Was it always something that you were going to publish and you were thinking yourself of yourselves as, as game designers, as publishers?
2: I think that um, sort of from the outset of that game, we were thinking about Kickstarter. Like We'd been talking to some of the game designers in that place about their experience with it and following projects on there and just thinking about how our work could fit into that scene. So yeah, the the allure of crowdfunding was part of the vision from the get-go, I think.
1: Yeah. And Kickstarter wasn't brand new at the time, but it was really kind of like in that heyday where it was just still it was like so inspiring to think about making something on Kickstarter and that uh, we would have this avenue for bringing something creative that we had envisioned to life. Um And I still feel so happy, you know, I mean, when the original Questlandia Kickstarter made $6,000, which now by our standards, we'd be like, oh, that's kind of, that's, that's a little bit rough for Mm -hmm. the scale that we, you know, kind of want to operate at now for Kickstarter. But, oh my gosh, I mean, that sent me. (laughs) We were like, we're rich. (laughs) (laughs) We're so happy. And I'm still so happy. I mean, it it enabled us to make the game plus, plus some.
0: Yeah. So when the two of you were first putting games out, you were part of a cooperative called Make Big Things, right? And, and that name itself is a, is a motto. I know at some point there was a kind of philosophical shift, and now you're called Turtle Bun, and there is a, a long period between those two things. But could you talk to my audience who might not know, if they don't already listen to your podcast, exactly why that shift happened?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was honestly really just a, a practical shift. We had been working as a three-person cooperative, me, Evan, and our coworker Brian, the third member of the cooperative. The last project that we did as Make Big Things was a massive board game, Good Dog, Bad Zombie, which did really well on Kickstarter. And then the pandemic happened. And the pandemic just, I mean, you know, for Better or worse, it was an opportunity where we all sat down and sat down together and talked about the types of games that we wanted to make and where we were in our lives and the the challenges. Over Good Dog Bad Zombie was a really challenging pro- project and it had burned us all out in different ways. And mm-hmm. we we made the decision during the pandemic to divide the company and to you know fold make big things. And Brian has continued to go on and he's actually going to be doing a kickstarter for a second edition of Good Dog Bad Zombie soon and Evan and I decided to continue with the role playing game so I mean it was it was a totally amicable but practical decision necessitated by a global pandemic that I think made a lot of people evaluate their lives and hopes So yeah, so Make Big Things is no more, but it it lives on in spirit and we continue to still support each other. But we decided to take the role-playing game leg of things and keep going with it.
2: I feel like you could just say like we we ended up, finally making a big thing.
1: We made a big thing and we were like, nope, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were like, well, never again. That the, was too big.
2: <laughs> two of the three of us were like, never again. And one of the three was like, yeah, make big things. Yeah, and so, so we were like, okay, let's.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turns out Evan and I really want to make tiny medium, things. Medium, small things. Yeah, medium, yeah. small. But... <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, I'm not sure when I started listening to Design Doc, but I, 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 I know this, the story of of that Kickstarter and kind of like how its success was this massive double-edged sword and stuff like that. And I think in the episodes where you sort of reflect back on 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 that time and you're thinking about how to move forward. One of the things you say is you want to only make stuff that you have or rather you want to keep as your primary consideration that you have a very strong personal relationship. the thing you're making. What brought this clarification in terms of like what you're trying to do?
2: So specifically with that Kickstarter, a board game about being dogs, we offered a level where you could play as your own dog and we would illustrate a a photo of your dog that you'd send us and ship you a set of the game with your own dogs like as the cards that you can play as. And when we were setting up this Kickstarter, you know, we were thinking, like, what can we offer at different levels? What will people want? And that seemed like a natural thing. It's like, oh, well, people who love dogs are going to play this game. They love their own dogs the most. I I think people would go for this. Uh, And so we talked about how to make it possible to do it. And that was correct. Many, many people wanted to do that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no uh, limit to people who want to play a board game as their own dog, it turns out.
2: Uh, <laughs> and and so we ended up on with a task of making a million dogs. And over the drawn out, long, long process of Doing all that and the ups and downs of, uh, you know, working with outside help and then having to redo all that work and working with the chaotic influx of communications and photos from people who backed at this level, it became more and more clear that, like, we had given ourselves a job that wasn't why we were making games at all. It actually had nothing to do with it. It was, it was, we successfully invented a job for ourselves that would work and would make money, but we had talked ourselves right out of the whole point that we were crowdfunding and making our own things.
1: Yeah. For, for two years, we became not game designers, but dog, dog
2: photo, photo editors, photo editors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, which is, you know, I mean, I think it's a, it's a balance that you have to strike when you are kickstarting your own games you know there's people will say like i wanted to be a creator not like a tax preparer yeah, you there right. there are all these parts that you do have to do yourself or figure out and some of them are not the parts that are fun or you know you find yourself going through phases where you're like oh i didn't like i wanted to be a game designer not a book layout artist and now i'm laying out a book uh, but
2: it's sort of like if even if you are laser focused on only promising the thing that you want to do you're still going to have so many extra jobs that are not what you want to do around right. the production and shipping and communication and yeah. promotion of whatever you're making. So then laying down a whole extra thing on top of that, you start to just feel the scale go wildly out of balance. It's like you barely remember the part you were excited about.
1: Yeah. So we, we wanted to get back in touch with that side, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah.
2: We wanted to make sure that like whatever we're promising to do, whatever work is on our plate is closely linked with why we're excited at all because like that core of caring about what we're making is what what like fuels us to get through the hard parts
0: it's funny that you mentioned, you know, all the answer stuff that already comes with game design, like shipping and stuff like that. I remember you've done a two-part episode about, I think, to ship game, you know, back yeah. packaging a, and shipping. It's a big packaging. part
1: of it, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's that's what's really cool about Design Doc and, you know, why why people kind of, you know, I and I, I genuinely mean it when I say that they that this is a much-loved podcast. It is unique in... In the fact that both of you are kind of unique voices and you know, you bring a, a personal point of view to the to the thing. And you kinda of allow yourselves to uh, to explore parts of daily practice of being a creative person trying to trying to put stuff out there and, and kind of covering all the stuff that tends to fall in the in the cracks. At some point that becomes something that you are aware of and you're consciously kind of thinking about.
2: We were thinking of Design Doc as like, you know, capital G, capital D game design. (laughs) And like, we wanted to have like a game design principle or concept that we were exploring with each episode.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and a lot of more of the the early episodes, I think are, you know, much more like, sometimes if I scroll back, it's like, oh, you know, they had titles like world building, meta plot. And then it started (laughs) to get a little bit weird. (laughs) And I mean, probably some of it was also just a feature of the longer that it took. I mean, when we set out in the first episode, we were like, this is our one-year chronicle redesigning Questlandia, and now it's six years later. At some (laughs) point, probably, we also were, like, having to be honest about why it wasn't happening. And Mm -hmm. so more conversations started to sneak in about money or, you know, having to take on a second job while trying to also do this work that we're doing or making 2000 dogs.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, at some point, we like, I feel like we ran out of our, you know, theoretical ideas about game design. So it's like, oh, Well, if we're going to put out another episode, what do we talk about now? I guess just whatever's going on.
1: Yeah. And maybe it started to feel a little insincere, too, about being like, well, who are we to tell people about Metaplot or Dice or how to make a game when clearly we haven't made a game? Yeah. It's kind of funny how it feels
2: like over the six years, we felt less and less qualified (laughs) to speak authoritatively on anything other than our own experience.
1: Yeah. Which is probably good life advice in general
2: could uh, I don't I, know <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe so <laughs> yeah, makes, makes
0: sense to me yeah <laughs> a couple of things I want to go back to a straightforward factual question is like does game design sort of support you now or do both of you do other things do you have other jobs as well
1: it's it it has supported us historically in a very minuscule way that's been yeah. you know That we've been able to sustain through things like having roommates into your thirties, and you know, like living really lightly, and also you know the things that like scaffolding that that both of us have been given just through like you know privileged families and and things like that. That I feel like are just important to. Acknowledge going into stuff like that, that it's not just living, living scrappily. It's like living scrappily and, you know, not having a lot of debt from college loans and stuff. And at the same time, you know, like right now, I've been, before this podcast, I was talking to Evan about the fact that I had a job interview yesterday and I've been looking for second jobs. And Mm -hmm. so it's, you know, it is supportive and not singularly supportive without. Some sacrifices that you know, at least especially for me, as I'm getting older, are like Ooh, I, I also want to. I can't retire on Questlandia too, especially yeah. if it's not going to exist. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, the you know, the only time that it really did like singularly support me was when I had another job that was also in the industry like working for a game company um but this you know this has always been like sort of squarely a part-time job with also being willing to accept like living with roommates and live a little scrappily and so yeah that which is hard
2: yeah yeah we 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 have not made it
1: Yeah. But I think it's, imp- you know, I I know that there's this like certain type of cynicism where some sometimes people will be like, you know, do you have any advice for like making it as a game designer? And some people will be like, don't do it. Don't go into it. There's no money. Save yourself the trouble. <laughs> but, um, which I think is kind of like cynical and also, you know, dashing of somebody's dreams. I think it's, you know, for us, it's been really hard for it to be a job that supports both of us for a full-time living in a way where we could buy a house or something. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's... <laughs>
0: then, so, I, <laughs> I guess, guess no. I the answer.
1: No, yeah, no. <laughs> um, um,
0: so the other thing I wanted to ask about is that there's a lot of stuff that you talk about on the podcast, stuff like how you feel when you run a crowdfunding campaign and somebody else runs a bigger crowdfunding campaign and you just have to sit there and you try to deal with that, right? A lot of the stuff that you talk about that seems very specific or small also seems like things that everybody feels and that nobody talks about. How do you come up with, okay, this this is something that we should talk about on Design Doc. Is it just something like you're going through the day and you randomly go like, "We should talk about this" or something like that.
2: That does happen. The randomly throughout the day, yeah, like, some- oh, that could be a design doc. Yeah, sometimes
1: randomly, it's. I think it's a little bit of a mix. I mean, it. We have a going list of topics. Like we have a document with topics that we can kind of pull from if we're feeling in the mood, and and some of them do get back into game design. Topics because we Mm -hmm. still like talking about game design. And I feel like in our past few episodes, even like we've even done some kind of recent episodes where we've started to get back into like talking about world building or talking about, I I don't remember, but (laughs) there's been a few recent ones. (laughs) Solo games.
0: Um, Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Solo
1: games. But, you know, often it will also just be like something that is kind of relevant to something that we're thinking about right now where we're like, oh, this is relevant to our week or to this month. So let's, let's, do a design doc about this while it's fresh.
2: Yeah. Kind of whatever we notice, we feel some passionate energy to talk about with each other. We're like, oh, well, switch on the mic, switch on the mic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes those ideas kind of fall flat too. Sometimes we'll have an idea that we think is good and we have some kind of like, failed oh, that's start just, episodes. That's just
2: an hour of whining about capitalism. Yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah.
1: Or we decide that they're too sad. We're like, that wasn't a design doc. That was just a vent. Yeah, <laughs> and, right. And we don't publish those. Yeah. Believe, believe it or you, not. You're, believe you're, or not. Yeah. You're yeah. hearing the curated version. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> We both like love design docs so much. It it means a lot to us. It's like an important part of our lives. And also, we just both have a lot of trouble being kind of like natural podcasters. Like sitting getting the energy to sit down and like set up our station, which is a little bit mobile and we're always mm-hmm. working on our sound and it's never quite right. We don't have a dedicated place to record. Like sometimes by the time we set up remember when I was a kid, I was like, when my sister and I would play with Barbies, we would do these like elaborate hour long, like hours long setups of like making the house and getting them dressed and putting them in position. And then we'd be like, well, I'm exhausted and we put them all away. (laughs) And that's like sometimes how Design Doc is for us, which is why, unfortunately, we don't have a more regular release schedule like we Mm -hmm. have aspired to for years and it's it's hard for both of us.
0: I mean, for, for what it's worth, I think it's been extremely regular the last one year. At least it's felt like it, you know. Um, a little,
1: a little like more. It. Usually, at least I an mean, episode. giving that life.
0: impression at all the, the impression is definitely is all a matters. huge step up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think one of the most interesting things for me, as somebody who, yeah, has to like work with other people a lot. Most of my creative projects that are not games, like games are the thing that I kind of can do just by myself. But almost everything else historically has been stuff that has involved a lot of people. Collaboration is something that you find out the hard way that everybody is not good at, equally like like it's something that your skill that you have to kind of learn. And and you know everyone has to kind of keep pace with each other to some extent so one of the things that i find really interesting about the two of you talking about when you work on games together is one you both seem to have like extremely like high standards for the kind of work that you that you want to put out like i'm i'm thinking of an episode like uh, flets which is which little end things, I think. Listening to both of you talk about it, I was like, ah, that's exactly the kind of thing that, you know, when I'm designing a game, this is the stage I give up, right? This is the stage I go like, it's it's done. Yes. It's it's yeah. it's out. Like I can't I can't do this anymore. And and what's most impressive is that you have to do it kind of together, right? And both of you have these high standards and you're collaborating on on stuff like the precise choices of words. And to me, theoretically, that's not possible. Like, you know, like that's like, like <laughs> the kind of thing. But I was like, okay, okay, I have to get three people in a room, and we have to decide whether we like these words. I'm like, oh, can I do anything else? So like, how does that? Yeah. How does that yeah. typically go? Like, for the two.
1: <laughs> it's a great question because, you know, I think we we honestly talk all the time about how lucky we are to have just so many overlapping tastes. I mean our tastes do differ and we do get into arguments or places where we both kind of put our foot down about like aesthetic preferences or word choices. But I think I think collaboration is really hard because there are going to be people that you collaborate with who just like who have moved like farther on that scale of right. overlap in terms of like the the exact word choice that works for them and and where their preferences are. So I I feel so lucky.
2: Me too. Yeah. I mean, you know, from my perspective, the luck is in finding somebody to work with who's right about everything. And then <laughs> I can just like kick <laughs> back. Oh <my> um, <laughs> uh, know that that is not true. <laughs> uh,
1: and it's, it's gotten better over the years too. I mean, also a lot of it is just like, there's, there's sort of like aesthetic, tastes and preferences and then also just communication and I think our communication is really good where we can say like I'm in a really bad mood today or like I'm hungry and I know that's making me like kind of like attack you for your word choices in this paragraph (laughs) there are many times I mean especially like like Evan has like like a goofy sense of humor and there are times where I'm like Evan that's that's so dumb, <laughs> and, and sometimes which is it, true. And, and sometimes that puts me in a good mood, and other times I'm like, "Oh, that's so dumb." <laughs> and, and usually that just means I like didn't sleep well enough, enough before. So, you know, I mean, you if I feel like if you collaborate with somebody for long enough, you learn their preferences and yours, and, and yeah, I I I just really think we're so lucky.
2: I mean. I feel like uh, we have the good fortune of having a kind of back and forth where when you're tugging on words in one direction and then Hannah tugs in the other direction and it goes back and forth, it ends up improving with every zigzag. Like We are each sort of recognizing strengths in what the other is doing and then also noticing the parts that aren't. As strong and like trying to pull on that part and pull it back. And each time it feels like it's ratcheting up to something where we both are happy with it. And I feel like by the time we're both really happy with a sentence, like it's great. It's a great sentence. And I really feel like it pushes me to make something better than I would ever have the patience or perspective or flexibility to find on my own.
0: I I think that's been my experience as well. Like even like what you talk about, kind of the zigzagging, but zigzagging upwards always Or like, you know, is it just something that you kind of remind yourself that you're just able to remind yourself like this is getting better? Or does it feel like, hey, we've spent 30 minutes talking about a sentence and there are more sentences to do?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Both. Definitely both. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: it's, I think it's, it's a hard mix, especially when we were finishing the the second edition of Questlandia. We mm-hmm. had made this spreadsheet where we uh, put on the spreadsheet next to a check mark every single little line edit that we wanted to make. And there were like, God, was it 200, 500 of them? Yeah, it hundreds was hundreds of hundreds. It was just yeah. hundreds of hundreds. And sometimes we would, I and mean, this is, I think something that happens pretty often is we'll look at a sentence and I'll say, well, let's just do it. Let's just figure it out. We're just going to figure out how to make this sentence better. And we look at it and just stare at it. And, and we'll talk about it for a half an hour. And then I'm like, okay, we just have to do it. And that doesn't, <laughs> some, somehow <laughs> just saying that doesn't make it happen. Well, and
2: <laughs> the, the general feeling of just wanting to be done with a project which is always where it's at by the time you're doing these very minute adjustments the, the and flaps, decisions, yeah. you're always at the point where you just want to be done. Yeah. And that feeling just washes over again and again and again, where it's like, as soon as you get to a, a stop point where you're not sure what to do next, the feeling is like, oh God, <laughs> I'm stuck in this sentence. It is a prison. <laughs> yeah. I'll die here. With this you know, <laughs> repetition this. of the word serendipity or something it's just
1: (laughs) but i mean it really does happen where we'll we'll then we check the sentence off the list after an hour of going back and forth about it and you do like then we look at the list and we're like oh there's still so many left but it does it does go up like it does that that back and forth i like what you said the upward zigzag it does keep going up but it's frustrating
2: (laughs) i gotta keep reminding myself like we can't make progress without finishing forever. Like at at some point, like all of this is going to add up to a finished book.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it also helps that we have proof that like we have, it's off screen, but like we have a wall of our role-playing games over to the Mm -hmm. other side of us. And sometimes it's helpful to look at them and say, okay, we, we have finished before. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Eventually things do get finished if you keep pushing at them.
0: What would you say to the claim that it could always get better though? So, so where do you stop then? I feel
2: like if you're looking at the product itself, then sure, it could always be better theoretically. But if you're looking at the people who are working on it, you can get it as good as you are capable of doing. You can get it in line with your own standards. Okay. and. You can't really stretch beyond your own standards because then you don't even know what you're doing. So like your own standards are at a certain level, what you can see and appreciate and like and feel like is good is at a certain level and you can gradually change your own ability to you know see what's good, to appreciate something, but that's a years long process. And I feel like If a given book that we're making reflects the best that either of us can see at that moment in time, that's a great time to publish it rather than hanging on to it and being like, well, in five years, I might have better... Diction
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I'll also add that we're, you know, usually have kickstarted projects, and we are bound by a certain timeline. And, right. you know, I do think that sometimes this kind of this funnel starts to close, where it's a meeting of how acceptably late we can be delivering the book yeah, to kick right. Turner backers yeah. versus our own preferences and tastes. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think there are there are places where we have said, good enough, you know, where we've said like, this is a three out of a five for exactly where we'd want it. But like, we don't know how to get it to a five with where our skills are right now. But yeah, so there's also that the pressure of time helps to combat some of the perfectionism. And it is always weird to then look back. I mean, I think both of us look back on our books. And sometimes we just kind of see a wall of the all the things that we would want to change and where our where our tastes or skills have grown now. And sometimes that means making a second edition. And right. sometimes that means just letting it go yeah. and being a, an object of the past.
2: It's reminding me of drawing. Like when I'm drawing, there's a certain point in a picture where I don't know how to make it better, even if I want to. And I just start pushing colors around and lines around hoping to get lucky and find something I like more because it's just out of my ability to control the process. So that, that happens with our writing too.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. I, I don't know if this is true. This might be you know, uh, apocryphal, but uh, the, the writer, uh, P.G. Woodhouse, uh, used to do this thing where his first draft were, were, were handwritten notes on a page. Then he'd like stick them on a wall and then he'd rewrite the page and then stick the stick stick it slightly higher up and he'd huh. keep rewriting the page till it was out of reach and he'd be like, Now it's done. <laughs> you
2: know? Oh, I love
1: that idea.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's even if it's apocryphal, that's a great story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, we could use some of that. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I I like it because it is it is a commitment to rewrite, but it's also like at some point. It's too high up on the wall, and I can't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the questions I ask everybody who comes on the show. And my first question, which is called infectious enthusiasm. The question I have is: What's a game that you've had a lot of fun with that you want to recommend to my listeners?
1: I, I was just thinking about a game that I played. Hopefully it's a game that's still available, but an an early game when I had first gotten into the, you know, into indie RPGs, there was a game that came out called The Beast. That is yeah. a solo card-based game. And it was my first introduction to the concept of a solo game or a journaling game. And I don't know if it was the first one, but definitely one of the first ones. And it's about you having like a secret relationship with a, a beast. And you kind of design the monster and what makes the monster sexy to you. And you journal about it over the course of a few weeks. And, and I remember being like, woo. Saucy. <laughs> I didn't know games like this could exist. So I'll, I'll recommend that. I mean, I know that journaling games and solo games now are, are not uncommon, but it's really cool to look back to a game that I think probably kind of led the way for a lot of them.
0: Nice. Evan, is there something that comes to
2: mind for you? You know, I think I'm going to stick to my guns and just say Usagi Yojimbo. Nice. Yeah. The classic. The classic. Usagi Jimbo is based on a comic book series by the same name. It's about the titular rabbit or just animals of all kinds living in medieval Japan having samurai or ronin adventures and it's, it has an emphasis on the violence inherent in that genre uh, being used as a story beat rather than an obstacle to get through. And I guess one of the things that interests me about it is that it is a dice-heavy, complicated, like headache to learn and usually for me that's a pretty bad sign that the mechanics are going to be just complicated for their own sake and yeah. be increasingly just sort of like uh, brainy and and just just somebody wanting to make a mini game which yeah. i think we've been guilty of
1: we're definitely guilty of making <laughs> mini games
2: <laughs> and yet on the other side of it it is it like latches together beautifully into a system that supports having something narrative occur at the end of any number of die rolls or whatever in a way that seems like wizardry to me. And it always makes me want to make a more complicated game. And then Hannah talks me down. Time.
1: That's probably our main
2: <laughs>
1: place of gentle conflict in our work days. I'm like, no more dice.
0: <laughs> so, my next question is a section called Tyranny of Numbers. And I ask, what is a number of statistic that you can share from your work that you think will be useful to someone else?
1: One one that's been kind of relevant the past few weeks for us is I think maybe back in December, I had put our role-playing games on Itch.io onto like a months-long 30% off sale or something. Yeah. And, you know, we don't sell a ton of PDFs on Itch.io at, at their full price, which range from... $10 to $12 and then you know sometimes closer to $4 for mm-hmm. our, for our smaller games. Something about that sale has really hit a sweet spot where we've been like selling a PDF almost every day or every few days, which is very rare for us. It's a, it's always a challenge between deciding like am I undervaluing my work, you know, is it what does it mean to to let to let this PDF go for $6? But that's felt interesting and exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I guess a number that's coming to mind for me is about print runs. And this is like a conversation that Hannah and I come back to over and over about how many books do you print? Mm -hmm. Because as you make more and more, the price per copy goes down and down to the point where you're like, okay, it's like, you know, $6 a book at this number. But if we get an extra 500 books, it's like those extra books are just $2 a copy it comes out to. It's just so so much cheaper to get an additional extra over and over and over. That calculation is just always there. And we've run into both sides of that where we have, for example, with Damn the Man Save the Music, we still have hundreds of copies from that Kickstarter seven years ago. Mm-hmm uh and you know that feels a little extra it's a lot to, to... <laughs>
1: yeah well it's a, it's a space burden it's sort of a psychic burden where you're like oh nobody wants these games <laughs>
2: yeah it would be like you know if we printed so few that we had sold out by this point we would feel very accomplished for having sold out even if that means making no more money than we have in actuality or even less because we'd be sold out. Yeah. And on the other hand, like we had a very short print run of one of our zines, You and Astronaut, uh, that we also included as an, a possible add on for a Kickstarter. And so people ordered more than we had. And we had to do a print run to like just cover that extra. And the ones that we printed, it was so few, it was like 20 copies or something, that they sold at cost, basically. It was like, it, they cost nine dollars to print or yeah, something, something, and they're a ten dollar product. Seen, yeah, so it's like for those you make no money. And if we had gone ahead and gotten a bunch of extra earlier on, like that whole order would have been cheaper, and it would have been like just uh, it would have been just sort of a unqualified boon that people had ordered this many extras of them. So. Uh, I don't know. No moral. It's just a back and yeah. forth.
1: I'm, feeling of I'm numbers sure all the time. I'm sure that like uh, there's probably like some sort of general, you know, guidance online for like how big your print run should be versus how many copies you anticipate to d- sell, but that's that's definitely been a one that's been hard for us to figure out historically.
2: So. You know, I always want us to aim high and just be like, well, we're going to
0: sell like crazy. We're yeah, going to sell. It
1: turns Sales. out we're bad at selling after the Kickstarters.
0: Uh, okay. Next question. Is there a story or anecdote you've heard about someone else playing your game that you'd like to share? I'll, I'll
2: say uh, this is, it's not much of a story. It's barely an anecdote. <laughs> don't, but like, it's, oh,
1: don't, min- don't minimize your anecdote. Well, it's just,
2: it's just. It, <laughs> it's been, just a dote. It's, it's just a dote. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a repeat dote of people coming up and talking about our sort of game zine graphic novel, Mud, uh, Golem Memoir, and telling us that it made them cry. Uh, in one case, somebody was like, it made me cry in a Panera.
1: Yeah. it's <laughs> Just like, oh, wow.
2: you know. That's a really powerful place to cry. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I don't know. That just hits me really hard every time because it's just like, wow. like we, we really did pour so much feeling into that story, but also so much frustration to make it come together and yeah. so much effort that's uh, it's just n- never clear whether any of it will come through. And so having people say that it affected them that deeply was like soothing some like wounded, curious part of my heart that I wasn't aware <laughs> of, was just waiting to hear. Like that I, that's it, just it, been hoping for people to
1: break a, down. You just yeah. want to make everybody cry in a Panera. That's
2: right. That's it.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's the That's the title of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every indie game designer's
1: dream is just making somebody cry in a Panera. Yeah.
0: <laughs> my last question is In a section called All Advice is Advice for Myself, is there a habit or technique that you're trying to get better at at the gaming table?
1: I think for me, I would really like to raise my confidence running just running games. I I have barely enough confidence to run our own games and historically have, and I, re- I remember like a convention once years ago, like where I had planned to run a game of Noirlandia, And at the last minute I was like, Evan, you have to run this game. I don't know what the rules are. <laughs> um, and, and that was like our game. Uh, and I, I think that over the years i've learned a lot about just even like my reading style and like how i take in information and so i'd i'd really like to just keep sort of climbing over that wall for myself of of running a game and especially a like a more complicated game and also knowing that the norm for a crunchier game is that you have the book at the table and you don't know every single rule by heart and it's okay you, like write them in there you're like I don't know how this specific thing in combat works let me look it up so that's that's something that I'd like to get better at as sort of dampening down some of the anxiety and upping my own patience which I think is I, I think I'm on my way there
2: for myself so I, I kind of have two modes at a table, and one is getting kind of shy and caught up in my own thoughts and increasingly detached from a game, and then the other is being overly ratcheted in, and my mind is racing and worrying, and I'm getting good ideas. And the game master asks somebody else a question, and I'm like, Ooh, "I know what they should say. Just <laughs> thing. don't worry. Yeah. That would be so good if they said this." And sometimes when I'm in that mode, I'm so. Happy to just have ideas and be like, you know, have a place to speak and feel all that. That I'll overindulge and be answering too much, and and the technique I'm using is to
0: stop. <laughs> <laughs> just
1: don't do it. That's, good. That's, <laughs> <weird>. <laughs>
0: uh, that's a high level technique, like that. High level technique. <laughs> just, it feels like just it. It's stop. rough. <laughs> Okay. Thank you both so much. Is there, is there a link or you know, a social media a platform, a you know, place that you want to shout out or something that you want me to uh, post in the description that you want uh, to let my listeners know about? Man, I don't know about Twitter. I, I know. It's so, still... it's so
1: hard right now to sort of yeah, know uh, what social media is the place to follow. I mean, I think that we'd love if people listen to Design Doc the the podcast which yeah. is you know it's in all the normal podcasty feeds and stuff.
2: We have an Instagram.
1: Yeah, that's that's, that's probably better than Twitter at this point. We're not the most active, but we, yeah. we try to be better. It's Turtle and Bun, right? Yeah, yeah, Turtle and Bun. Turtle and Bun is the Instagram and our website is turtlebun.com. Yeah. No and.
0: <laughs> and uh, do you have a Patreon?
1: We do, yes. yeah. Uh, uh,
2: Patreon.com slash TurtleBun. Mm-hmm.
1: And we're pretty active on our Patreon. We've also, we've been doing weekly devlogs. Every Friday we post a devlog with a like full rundown of everything we did that work week. And that's been really fun and has also made us more accountable to yeah, doing nice. things. <laughs> so, Yeah.
0: And thank you all for listening to this episode. I hope you go and check out Hannah and Evan's podcast. If you're not already listening to it, next week we have Quinn's from Shut Up and Sit Down, People Make Games, and now Quinn's Quest. We're going to be talking about reviewing games on the internet, in front of people. It's not just about giving opinions. It's also about receiving them a lot. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash IndieRPG. I'd appreciate it. All right, catch you next episode. <sighs> and cadmium, and calcium, and chromium, and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, and berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, and radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered.